Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 488. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in the network, please do go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. I'd also like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review for the show on Apple Podcasts by PsyGrad5000. So this week's interview is with Minghui Huyang, who is the Distinguished Professor of the Department of Information at the National Taiwan University. She recently co-authored with the Distinguished Professor Roland T. Rust the book The Feeling Economy, How Artificial Intelligence is Creating the Era of Empathy, published by Palgrave Macmillan. In this conversation with Minghui, we discuss why and how AI is shifting the role of the service worker from thinking to feeling the frontiers of feeling AI, how it's creating an era of empathy, what are the consequences for business leaders, and the implications for governance. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com, and please do consider to drop in a rating and review, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Professor Minghui Huang, what a pleasure to have you on my podcast. I came across your book uh, naturally uh, because it was a topic that was very near and dear to my heart, The Feeling Economy, How Artificial Intelligence is Creating the Era of Empathy, which you co-wrote with Roland Rust. So just in your own words, how would you like to present yourself, Minghui? I would like to present myself at that I am an AI and service uh, distinguished professor at National Taiwan University, but I'm very empathetic. Mm. And uh, I feel troubled all the time that when I'm so empathetic, machines and other people are not so empathetic. So I feel that I don't get reciprocity. Mm. And also as an AI scholar, very often I feel that females are underrepresented in my level. And so, I really found, try to find the answers myself. So I wrote a book with great fun. I really enjoy, enjoy writing a book and uh, so that I can understand better the, the big picture, not just specific narrow research questions about how AI can help us individually or to the economy, to the society, can help us become better. Of course, the conclusion is not always that rosy, but it's a process. To, to help us understand the interactions between AI and the humans. Fascinating. So um, let's start by wondering to what extent you believe there's a crisis of empathy. Is that something, the empathy gap that Barack Obama talked about, is that something that you absolutely see and feel? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, if we just talk about human, human side, I think especially in modern society, the distance between people it's become bigger and bigger, and uh, you can feel that uh, competition dominates instead of collaboration. So that I feel that people really is justified to not be empathetic. Very often, for example, for academic or scientific researchers, um, and therefore, for example, for the STEM education that the current higher education is emphasizing, people tend to think it is justified. If you don't have the capability to be empathetic, and that is really not good for human interactions, because in human interactions, we really need to be empathetic towards each other. That is, you need to be able to understand other people's feeling and thinking from the other people's perspective. And if we don't have it, and if we justify for not having it, then then how can we change that? Because I don't agree with that. I think that will make our society even worse. And so that the book, in the book, I really try to bring up this issue to make people understand you need to be empathetic. And of course, it's, it's a book about the feeling economy. And based on the title, people may mistaken, may mistakenly think about uh, it's about feeling AI. But on the contrary, what we are talking about is Thinking AI, because thinking AI is what we have right now. How thinking AI will push people 
to the side, the people to have to feel that they need to have a stronger need to understand each other because AI can do all the thinking jobs and tests. Then for that, you don't want to compete with AI for, for thinking capability because you cannot outperform. So we're going to get into that without a doubt, Minghui. I'm just wanting to start off by understanding a little bit more why you think that people need to be more competitive than collaborative. I mean, as an academic, of course, you'll know that everything happens through collaborations. I'm sure that's the case. And and society improves through collaboration. Do you feel that there's any maybe credit to this idea that narcissism is on the rise and that could be linked to this need to be super individualistic and competitive? I'm also I'm sort of think about in terms of the business world, uh, especially for example for marketing and uh, for business competition. We are talking about competitors. We are talking about who, what the other companies, who are the individual that you need to outbid so that you can be the winner. And uh, so even in academics, I think collaboration and competition also co coexist. There is always a tension that you have to outbid competitors. And I can use one example that in my classroom last semester, I even told my student because usually at the end, the final grade distribution of a class is no more distribution. It means you have to do better than other students so that you can get a better grade. And I even instruct them uh, explicitly that the grading system of this class is not uh, no more distribution. If you do better, other students also do better if you help each other out. Everybody get A. So it's not a normal distribution grading system. So what I want to emphasize is that uh, I do feel that, especially in the business world, uh, people tend to focus on competition too much and not collaboration enough. Not collaboration enough. Uh, so that would be my 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 understanding. So they they may sound like a little bit different from your understanding because if we all can collaborate, I think that would be great. Surely. So I, I'd be also interested from your background, since you are a distinguished professor at National Taiwan University, and teaching in the United States as well, if I understand correctly, or at least involved at the University of Maryland. How do you feel? teaching is different and, and how do you appreciate the student body in the United States versus in Taiwan? In Taiwan, uh, my teaching, my teaching uh, are all in English and uh, involve mostly international students. So I think in Taiwan, the teaching, you, you get, you have the opportunity to teach students from all different kinds of backgrounds and nationalities and speak different kind of language. And uh, I'm not a native speaker, so I especially appreciate people and understand when people cannot speak good enough English and then they were they may hinder their learning capability but I don't want to put them in, in the kind of this uh, disadvantages position uh, so that's a very special ex uh, experience but in the U.S. everybody speak great English so you don't have to come you don't have to be concerned about the language part so inclusive or exclusive is not depends on it's not depends on the language capability that's a major difference mm. and also students in the u.s also tend to be more explicitly competitive mm. because they want to be the best best one and in the entire one students tend to be implicitly competitive they want to be the best but they don't want to show that uh, in in front of other uh, students, so that those two are very interesting uh, benching contrasts. But uh, as to the capability, learning capabilities, I think they are the same. Cool. Let's get into the book a little bit. So you wrote, co-wrote this with Roland Rust, the distinguished university professor, uh, and David Bruce Smith, chair in marketing at the University of Maryland. Um, What's it like to write? Or how did you divide the task of writing? Because I've written, co-written as well. And I find it always interesting to understand how two authors write a book. Yeah, actually, uh, if you find, I, I, I write the first half, almost half, first half of the, of the books. And those are hard materials and the set of the foundation for the remaining chapters. And uh, I... We did that uh, deliberately to break to break out the the gender stereotype 
because those materials, the first half of the books are, are harder, are harder materials. And people will tend to think about uh, male authors can do better, but actually we, we, we swap uh, that position. And for the chapter about uh, female advantage, we talk about female maybe advantage in the feeding economy because of females better feeding uh, intelligence. Actually, he, he wrote that chapter because I say, I say, I don't want to write a chapter because I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want my gender role to, to bias uh, the content of that chapter. So actually we really uh, try to break the, the gender sugar type in deciding who, who, should, who should write which chapters. Mm, I but love if you that. like the first half, if you like the first half of the book, then you are in the, then you are empathetic about me. Well, um, the funny mm -hmm. thing is I listened to the book. So um, yeah. it's always, that's another interesting angle when you have the voice of the um, speaker. When um, what, what, one of the key elements of your book, of course, is, is that we have been transitioning from the economy, the physical economy, into the thinking economy. And now moving towards the feeling economy, can you, in some fashion, help us to understand what you mean by that? Because that really sets up this idea of the feeling economy. Yes, the three economies are roughly correspond to uh, the three the the evolution of the economy from agriculture to manufacturing to service. So in the agricultural economy or the agriculture sector of an economy, uh, it relies more on heavy-duty things, heavy-duty tasks, like uh, those heavy-duty tasks traditionally males can do better because of their muscle. So we call that as the an economy of, of the muscle man. And then when we evolve, advance to the manufacturing economy, and then there will be the time that machine really can help human beings to, to work in a factory, for example, like the assembly line. And uh, the physical capability may not be that important or become less important as in the physical economy, because after the assembly line break down the entire production process into small pieces, small units, everybody, almost everybody can do it. And then when we move, but at that time for manufacturing, you can see that it's more like the involved with rational thinking and uh, and uh, planning, production planning, uh, optimizing uh, production process. So it involves more about thinking capability. And then AI is so good at thinking capability. So now AI can do a lot of things uh, for manufacturing, for the rational thinking. So we are forced by technology, by the advances of technology to move on to the service economy in which human interactions and communications becomes more important. You can see that if you go to a restaurant and then you interact, you interact with the human waiters, you, you interact with all other humans, even if machines can do some of the interaction, basic ones, but they cannot do as good as humans. So in the service economy, human interactions, communication becomes so important. And then these are the parts that a machine cannot do better than humans. So that's what we are, we are talking about in the service economy, it is going to be the feeding economy because it will be humans doing the feeding task, telling, doing the feeding tasks and jobs, uh, and then we can do better than machine, than thinking machines. So listening to you, I, I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I can't help but think of of how productivity has been improved through these different technologies. And, and there's also still a very important component to accompanying these technologies, which is energy. Because if we don't have the energy to make the machines going, then we won't be able to replace the man or women who are doing the hard physical manual labor. We've got to the AI and, and you hear all these talk of, of these farms and the amount of electricity and energy that's needed to make all the AI going. And then my mind goes to the energy that's interpersonal through empathy and, and the energies that we have as human beings. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Does that stir any reaction? That is a very interesting perspective because when you talk about energies, it's more like 
I was, I think I, I'm talking about the technology itself and, and what they can offer. And that you convert or transform the technology into different kinds of energies. I, I actually love it. And if I use the feeling economy as an example, it means the kind of empathetic empathy as the energy. Uh, so whether machine, if machine in the physical economy provide uh, electricity and engine power uh, to, to uh, as the energy to push the economy forward, and then in the manufacturing part, provide the thinking capability to move, to push the economy forward. Then in the feeling economy, empathy is the energy. Mm. And then energy, how does the energy work? move us forward is a very good perspective. Thank you. I, 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 that was basically just riffing off of what you were talking about. So the notion of feeling AI, obviously a large part of this is, is down to AI becoming so good at thinking that we don't we won't be able to do the thinking, or at least it'll be always better than the human beings thinking. Give us a, a perspective on how far you believe AI is and when it will get to the point that all thinking will be done by the AI. Uh, I had a paper uh, published in 2019 in California Management Review and the reviewer, initially we didn't want to make the prediction the reviewer asked us to provide a prediction. Yeah, about mm. how many years? In how many years uh, thinking uh, can take over all human thinking jobs? And uh, so we are forced to make a prediction, but based mm. on based on government data. So it's not the data that we, we, we make it up or we collect ourselves. Uh, it's based on government data. It's called ONET data. And based on the prediction, we project into the future. That would be about 25 to 30 years. The thinking uh, can do almost all or most, most uh, human thinking jobs. So what left based on the prediction, what left at that time in about 30 years, and then what left will be the feeding, feeding testing jobs for humans. And actually, uh, I have seen that progress already. So I, I personally think the prediction is quite accurate. Because nowadays, the entire feeling economy prediction is based on that thinking AI is going to take over or thinking jobs, and the humans have to move to the feeling jobs. But now, the thinking AI is move, is progress is progressing rapidly to try to have thinking capability, although even although still in a thinking way, and that that shows that that is a sign shows that to focus on think feeling is really the only human way. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. So listening to you i i think of and i'm not at all a an expert in this domain but it it seems to me that as human beings the first port of call when we observe something is through our emotions and is it scary is it exciting and then we tend to move into other belief systems in our brain that allow us to sort of rationalize what we're seeing. And then if we're hope, if we're a little bit lucky, it goes into the front of our brain and we think through, uh, well, we shouldn't be worried about that. Let's put perspective on this or, or that's what I understand the brain is. And what I'm thinking here is that we're promoting more a feeling idea, which is the first layer of emotion. And I was wondering to what extent that is a reading when we talk about the feeling economy or the feelingness as opposed to what a computer can do? It's a very interesting question. And that is related to a, a paper I just, um, um, I was working on and just finished it. It's mm. called Feeling AI. And in that paper, uh, the process you described, mm -hmm. yes, 
that's the case. We we experience something, and that something can be you you your heart rate increases, and you were you have red faces, and you have you have all these biological reactions, and、uh, that you don't know what what they are. So for a more empathetic person, the second step is to label to label your experience. So you may know. People, people have a higher empathetic capability. May know, okay, this is this is happy reaction, or this is a a fear reaction, fearful reaction, and、uh, and then you can do that kind of labeling for other when you see other people's facial expression. So labeling, actually, machine can do very good because machine is so good at classifying different things. So labeling facial expressions are what feeding AI can do okay right now. What feeling AI don't have is that is the first step it is where we experience something, and we know we are experiencing something. Some people can label it very well, some people cannot. The better you can label your emotion, the better you can、uh, interact with other people appropriate. So the, that is the biological part, the experience part that feeling AI cannot do because feeling AI is thinking based, given the current technology. So that is a very important.、Uh, that's a very important distinction between between thinking AI and feeling and feeling human. Nifty. So, what about consciousness? We thinking and feeling. And I just I'm I'm no expert in this. I although I've read Danette and lots of other、uh, authors, neuroscientists.、Uh, so I have this think. I have this feeling I might know something, but. What about consciousness within this? Is that something that is going to be of the domain of us human beings within this feeling economy, or, and do you see machines,、uh, we giving、uh, the idea property of consciousness to a machine? I don't think, given the current AI technologies, machine cannot have consciousness in human way. But the question I I. Often ask, does that matter? Because machines are not the same as humans, and that is the important foundation for the feeding economy. And so, even if machine can take care of the communication and feeding tests in its calculation way, it it does not require machine to have conscience to do that. So that's the so-called、uh, Turing test. Machine has input and has output. As long as the output is appropriate, that is, for example, a robot's a, a robot's emotional reaction to a customer. If that is appropriate, we don't we don't care about or we don't care or we don't know about how much generate that emotional reaction that is appropriate. So consciousness consciousness is is not relevant or the same when you talk about machine. Yet it will be very relevant for us. Yes. As human beings programming、uh, these computers to have an ethical framework and for us to be conscious about the implications of that reaction of a bot or a robot in a store to a reaction by a human being, and that they're going to have to be, you know, that's where we have to eliminate biases, where we have to be relevant and 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 find reactions that are appropriate, as you say. That's where I think there's a sort of a higher degree of consciousness. Where Danette says it's thinking about thinking and being meta about my experiences that that allow us to layer in a more sophisticated level of coding that doesn't get us into trouble. Yes. Also, I think there are two stakeholders regarding this issue. One is the designer. The designer, as you mentioned, that when they design the machine, when they develop the machine, they need to take that factor into consideration. And another stakeholder that people tend to ignore is consumer, the users. Users, for I, I use the the companion robot as an example. Users tend to forget about machines does not have conscience now. It only is based on reinforced learning. That if you、uh, if you say this is a good response, then they should learn, and then next time you do better. So over time, you will feel that the machine really do、uh, really react to your emotions empathetically. 
and that the machine is really understand you so well. So you you attribute the machine has agency. That is more like you attribute the machine to have you consider the machine to have conscience consciousness, but that is not right. So so consumers users need to know, and is at the, at the current level machine does not have consciousness, or even in the future. Even if machines have consciousness, and for, so from a, a designer perspective, consciousness consciousness need to be taken into consideration in a machine way, not a human way, because machines and humans uh, reach conclusions, thinking, feeling in different ways. Right. So a large part of your book, Minghui, you talk about, and I think it's fairly plainly put is that there's a more feminine way of thinking, which, as you said, was written by Roland Rust uh, more than you. <laughs> so uh, I, I've long thought about this as well. And and I generally have thought that's that's appropriate and, and valuable. For example, studies show that on balance, women... Uh, so described, because we have to be careful about how we uh, put labels on on this, will have a score a higher level of empathy. On balance, you read uh, women are from Venus and men are from Mars, and uh, or Dr. Deborah Tannen's book, which I prefer. You just don't understand men and women in conversation. There's a a higher sensitivity to other people's feelings, a higher sense of rapport building, collaboration, collaboration, and and the word comes instinctively uh, within women. Then, what I'm thinking is, if I'm in a business or at at a business school, how does one change the culture of my organization? How does one uh, change the way you teach in a school to improve all these things, which will be much more relevant in the feeling economy. I do love this uh, this question because they, I have a, I have very deep feeling about about it. Uh, as a as a scholar, I think in my early days, actually, I I study emotions, and uh, so my first ambition is to have a book to to um, all different kind of emotions, past emotions, negative emotions, and I want to have a book discuss all different kinds of emotions. And then actually, I actually uh, stopped that process sometime later because I realized I'm a female scholar. If I work on the topic of emotions, then people will think, oh, that's female stuff. You're that's just a only... woman, just a woman yes. talking about her. Yes. So I, I actually stopped that part. Even if that is something I really love, because I'm actually a very uh, uh, I'm an empathetic person, and that that made me uh, be unhappy sometimes when I have to encounter some people who have no idea about other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. So later, I actually, I changed my topic to computer science because I want to show I want to show I can do it. That has nothing to do with my gender, but I don't think that's right. That's why we we wrote in that book, and that is really my key idea. That is, we should not limit women. We cannot. People tend to say that's a stereotype that female tend to be more feeling oriented, and men tend to be more thinking oriented. So that's a stereotype. So we should break the stereotype. And my situation is that if, in a statistical sense, and they can count my own example. Yes, I'm a female. And I'm also more feeling oriented. I'm actually yes. I fall into all the stereotype for being a woman. What can I do? So should I break the stereotype by doing something that maybe is not my first priority, or is our education system or our society allow me to be a woman? And that's the argument we want to say in the book that our education system should not just emphasize STEM education and have provide a lot of interventions uh, to help. Uh, to help girls and the females to be in in the STEM area, because that is justified. That is so called breaking the stereotype, and they really tend to treat all, all those females who are good at feeling intelligence and more like secondary. Okay, you can go to social science, and in Taiwan, if you study major social science, you are secondary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like and in France, uh, by the way. Yes. 
So that's not good to the society and also not good to the humanity of females who are who are just females. Yes, the reason we have that stereotype is because in general, in a statistical sense, that's the case. Yeah. But it does not mean we should overemphasize or underemphasize each way. We just need to the educational system should provide an equal chance for females who, if a female if a female is good at good at feeling intelligence, that her has the opportunity to develop it. And if a female is good at STEM education, thinking thinking capability, then yes, has all the interventions to help the woman to do it to achieve it. Both ways need to be done instead of just one way. What a what an interesting journey uh, that you described there because. <laughs> At some level, the easy route is to go where you're good and where you feel natural. And what you've clearly done is sought the challenge out to break the stereotype at your own cost at some level, because it would have been easier for you to incarnate the emotional, empathic individual and scholar that you are. So I'm still thinking about how does one teach <laughs> empathy, instinct? intuition, emotion, uh, consciousness, ethics in, in schools? How does one promote that in the business if I'm running a company and, and uh, I, I get this, this professor comes in and says, mentor, you need to have uh, be prepared for the feeling economy. Get everybody to uh, be better at feeling. All right. Whoa. Okay. How, what kind of line should I be taking if I'm running the company and I need to be prepared for the feeling economy? Teaching, teaching empathy and teaching and uh, teaching science, I think uh, is very different in one way that if you are not a feeling person, I think it will be difficult for students to, for you to teach students feelings because students can feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, interactions, communications are very important. And in my own in my own class, the way I teach the class that I I really try. I don't want to hide it. I, I really try to be uh, be empathetic. And the students over the semesters over the semester, students can get it. And they also in teaching evaluation, they always feel that I'm very empathetic. So I believe that to teach empathy, you need to be an empathetic person. Otherwise, it would be very difficult. Mm, well, I I mean, in the book I wrote, Artificial Empathy, I, I'm very clear. First of all, I think you need to be empathic before you even set down the ethical framework if you are looking to try to make an empathic machine, because obviously you need to have an ethical framework. That's sort of what we were talking about a little bit before about setting down what is good and bad behavior, what is appropriate, and, and what are the lines that you want to set down for your machine. So you, you better come into it being empathic. But the challenge, I mean, you, you, you write in the book that there's going to be less room for geeks and mathematical minds, scientific minds, in this you know, world where AI is doing all the thinking. And, and my observation for having been in business a lot of the time is a lot of the people at the top of the stack, typically CEOs, typically men, are imbued with, or at least, you know, like to think they are good thinkers and, and maybe uh, did STEM, maybe are geeks or, or, you know, if you look at all the, the technology companies on the West Coast. So if the top isn't empathic, then we've got a problem, Houston. How do we fix it? There are two possibilities that we we talk about in the book, but not uh, very extensively. I think one, I always treat the first solution as a joke, but I think it's not a joke anymore. I would say that uh, since I mentioned that you need to be empathetic in order to teach empathy. So one way is even if feeding AI is not very mature and it's very mechanical, and it's also thinking based, but the current development, when we try to make AI has the feeling capability, it's not ideal, it's not good, but it actually can help those people who are not uh, feeling capable to understand other people's feeling better, to help them to interact with others, communicate with others better. 
A very good example would be the autism. Those AI really can help autism kids, people to, to react, to understand other people's perspective. Otherwise, they don't have the capability. So it actually can help, even if it's not ideal as an individual entity to interact with humans uh, appropriately, emotionally. But it can help. For healing AI, it can help people who don't have good enough feeling capability to understand, to be empathetic. And then that is a good starting point because once you can understand other people's feeling a little bit better, that is more like get you into it. You have one foot in it already, so that can help. So that's one way to do. And uh, the second way, uh, second way to achieve that is really to, that is a repeat tautology. How to teach if you are not empathetic is difficult for you to teach. But if you are an empathetic teacher, then you really can help your students in the classroom, even if they are not empathetic. For some students, they have lower empathetic capability. You can help them. And that, that, can, be, that can be taught. So that's a, they are, those are the two solutions we, we talk about in the book. One of the industries that you identify as being prime for improvements through the feeling economy has everything to do with the service, service industry, service economy, and you know, the, the value of relationships and your ability to interact with human beings and, and to be genuinely human. Where is that in teaching? Because I think of service as being servant leaders, as serviceable, as elements of humility that need to go into the fact that I'm maybe not entitled as I think I might be sometimes, and therefore I need to be of duty to the others. Is that not also something that needs to be drummed into the, the new employee of the feeding economy? Yes, and then that's the human side. That's what human. That's what that's what humans are good at, and that's why that we 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 the the book encourage uh, encourage employees, consumers, both have to have better uh, feeling capability because uh, empathy is is two sides. As I mentioned, as I use myself as an example, when I encounter with with other people who are lower in. Uh, in empathy, in empathetic capability, I feel frustrated. And so not just for customers, employees also need to be empathetic. And that, so that can generate, they can generate good interactions. And then that is important in the service economy because service require more heavily about human interactions and communications. For example, if you, if you work in a factory, if you work in an assembly line, there are probably not much interaction required in your job. It, of course, there are human interactions in your social life. And in a service economy, even it's just when you want to, when you have a service interaction, when you travel, when you go to restaurants, when you even car rental, whatever service you can think of, it all involves direct human interactions. That's what we so-called co-production. Employees and the customers co-produce uh, the service. So that's why in the feeling economy, Feeling economy will be the service economy, and especially will be the soft service economy. Those services that emphasize feelings more. Hmm. Well, you know, I, 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 I cheeky, um, Minghui. I'm thinking, how artificial intelligence is creating the need for empathy, not necessarily the era of empathy, because pushing back, I feel like, as you were saying at the beginning, we are far from being an empathic society. And and I see a far more pushing into entitlement. The the there's a, f I mean it depends on which way you want to interpret it. But this higher sense of narcissism, and and so what do you how do you react to that? We need to create the need for empathy, or rather than necessarily saying we're ushering in the era of empathy. I will change the need. The word need to recognize. I think human human beings, human interactions require empathy, and that we used to have that. It's more like in the old, in the good old days. We used to have that, or at least we place uh, stronger emphasis on that. 
but with with machines really change our lives and uh, and the play and even more important role in our economic life or daily life actually empathy being downplayed and become kind of sort of subsumed under uh, 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 under interactions so i'm thinking about thinking ai help us to recognize we should reinstate the role of empathy in human interactions instead of just thinking about okay empathy is nothing and it is it may bias that's what people always say it may bias our decisions so we should get rid of emotional parts in our decisions mm. and that's the thinking economy i really like the way you turn that around Bing Hui. um the other thing uh so you have an entire chapter on the emoji it's entitled around the emoji Mm-hmm. And as so I was going to ask you, all right, so the premise that you have uh, within the book is that the emoji is a sign of our focus on emotions in a textual manner. We add them in to, to reinforce the feelings rather than just the words on the screen. And being an author, as you and I both are, I... We, we, you and I aren't adding emotion emojis into all of our works uh, in academic papers. If you were to write, you know, a, a, a title and submit it to whoever with emojis all over it, I'm thinking it wouldn't go down well. So I was wondering to what extent you, as a uh, Professor, look at emojis, and and do you get papers that are submitted with emojis? Is that is that where we're at with these things? And and to what extent do you read into these this language of emojis accurately? The emotions, because I certainly don't. Yes, yeah, so emoji does not use in scientific papers because mm-hmm. scientific papers really try not to have emotions. The only scientific paper is the output of the thinking economy that it try to it try to not try not try to be uh, neutral uh has no emotions but in social media in social media and then you can see that emoji really is so important all the social media they try so hard to invent invent new emojis for people to use because emoji help younger people in especially younger people to to express their feeling because they are in general not so good at writing in ter- uh, compared to older generations and so for the younger generation those emojis help them to express their feelings so i think that really help that that also is help the emergence of the feeling economy because yes they don't have to write uh, their feelings it's just too difficult for them but if there are good emojis for them to express their feelings that help to communicate communicate the feelings to their peer groups even to their parents because one symbol one emoji very often can say a lot of things then then written text we call yeah. that a textual feeling yeah like a picture says a thousand words yeah, I don't remember if you wrote about this in in the Feeling Economy book, but I, I've read it a numerous times. How some of the younger generation prefer to break up with their partner, spouse, or you know, girlfriend, boyfriend uh, through a text message than to say it live, and the justification is that it it's easier on them, the other side. Uh, as well as the difficulty of actually saying it themselves. And I, I kind of, I, I wonder, I, I raise an eyebrow as an old person. Obviously, I'm part of the older generation, thinking that that's the right way. Uh, so do I have to adapt? No, actually, you really, you really catch a very good point. And I, I talk about that point in one of my keynote talks about emoji. So I talk about using emo- emojis can help people to express their feelings when they cannot do it. So that's the positive use. That's a positive use of emojis. Another use of emoji is the situation, is the scenario you describe. That is, it's not that the person cannot express their feelings so that they use emoji. It's because the person escaped from expressing the emotion because they, the emotions are not justified. 
or they, it's too difficult for them to say it. So they use emojis as a scapegoat, as a shortcut, or easy way out to, to say it. So that's a bad negative use of emoji. So emojis can be used in positive way and negative way to help you express emotion or or be used as an easy way to, to avoid expressing emotions that were actually to the person. All right. Well, this, I, I, I just landed on a thought. I love this, how this has just happened, but it strikes me that we're talking about relationships here and whether it's in the service economy side of things or the humanity that we must show up with versus the thinking AI, that we should actually be learning to have more conversations because conversations are a way to learn about somebody else, to learn about yourself as you express the words. It's about developing relationships and, and, and all that becomes a fabric from which you'll be better as you go along in business and in life. So conversation. So you're, yeah. you're talking about human conversations should be more important. And how about conversation with machine? Uh, well, if you go back to the, the computer in the 1960s that was built on the Rogerian principle, of just reformulating what you say to me, uh, it turns out that everybody likes that because nobody listens anymore. <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to leave ourselves on a negative note, though, Minghui. I have really enjoyed speaking and and listening to what you have to say, getting to get inside a little bit of of, of your life and and the work you've been doing. How can people follow you or uh, get your book, of course, uh, contact you should you wish. What would be the best ways for anybody to follow up on this, listening to this conversation with you, Minghui? Of course, they have to they have to listen to your blog, but the easiest way, easy way is to uh, contact me by email. And the more information about me can be found upon, from my website, the National Taiwan University website. I'm in, I'm in the information management department. That is the easiest way. I will put all that and, of course, a link to your book with Ron Roland Rust uh, in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Minghui. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Revenges and struggle with the 
succeed Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me Precipitating the danger to feel free Trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man here in these confines A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man, me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.